Hey, good morning. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Thanks for making your way, uh, as Sean said, down here to the uh, to a new room, um, a different room. Surprised to see you guys here. Actually, I thought that this would be so confusing that you wouldn't want to come, so I'm glad you're here. I uh, want to reiter- reiterate what Sean said. Be sure to come early next week. Parking will be difficult if you don't get here early. But even though it's difficult, still come, but just know that it'll be difficult. Hey, I want to just update you guys just a moment. Those of you who are regulars here know that we are in the process of uh, negotiating to purchase uh, a building downtown that we could call our home. And I just want to let you know where we're at in this process. Uh, the inspections have been done. We're waiting on the reports to come in. Uh, as soon as those reports come in, we will move into sort of the second round of negotiations to talk about what the inspections have revealed. Uh, we are getting approvals for parking. That's been going very well. Some of you have been very helpful in that process. We're continuing to work on that, though. And um, after the second round of negotiations and after we finally finalize the contract, there will be a period of time uh, that I think 60 days before we can actually close. But during that 60-day period of time, we will be coming to you and we'll be talking about fundraising, which I'm sure will be exciting to all of you uh, that we'll be talking about that. But that's kind of where we're at. Just want you to know that that's where we're at, and the thing is moving forward, and I'm very excited about it and feel very optimistic about the fact that this will go forward, and um, then I look forward to being able to come to you and say it's a done deal, and we're going to have a home downtown Evansville uh, by, hopefully, by the end of this year, we might even be able to be in the building. Uh, we'll see how that goes, but hopefully that will happen. So that's, that's kind of where it's at right now. I also want to thank Sean Little, who did a great job of speaking the last couple of weeks. Would you please uh, express your appreciation to Sean? <laughs> Listening to Sean is always fun because he's got that hip-hop rhythm that he gets into. Have you noticed that? He just gets into it. Don't you just keep waiting for him to like break out into some hip-hop every once? And, and I, yeah, please encourage him to do this. I, I think I want to hear hip-hop Sean. I want to hear him go. Uh, and I would do it, but I'm just not that cool. And anytime I try, I look the fool. I don't know. Is that, is that good? Okay. That's the extent of my hip-hop right there. Uh, okay, so this morning we're going to start a new little series. And it's going to be it's a mini-series, like two weeks. And it's called More Than Symbols, The Cross and the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as you know, this week and, and next week, believers in Christ all around the world, wherever they may be, whether it's an underground house church in China or a small Anglican church somewhere in the Gaza Strip or in a rented-out hotel ballroom in Dubai, uh, wherever they are, Christians are focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ this week and the resurrection of Jesus Christ next week. But it is also true that in many churches around the world, and even here in the city of Evansville, some sermons that will be preached in the next couple of weeks will reduce the cross and the resurrection down to mere symbolism. And, and here's, here's what I mean uh, by that. In the case of the cross... In those sermons, many of those sermons, the cross will be portrayed merely as symbolic of human suffering and tragedy. And in the case of the resurrection, the empty grave, the empty tomb, will be preached merely as a symbol of hope beyond 
tragedy. In other words, neither the cross nor the resurrection will be portrayed in those sermons as literal events in which God intervened in human history in a way that could revolutionize human life. Instead of being preached like that, they will be preached merely as stories meant to symbolize suffering and the hope that lies beyond suffering. And it may seem to some of you that I'm preaching to the choir this week and next, but I think it's important to take these two weeks to remind ourselves of the significance of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as more than just symbols but as actual events in human history that have unique power to change the lives of people who believe in them. And this morning I just I want to focus on the cross by looking at a passage in the New Testament book of Galatians, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. If you have a Bible with you, and you should, because you come to church with a Bible, you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth, you come to church with a Bible. That is just automatic, right? It's just automatic. Right? Like, like you wear deodorant every day. You come to church with a Bible. Shouldn't have to teach you that. It just happens, all right? So you just do that. Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. That's where we're going to be looking. Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. Um, as I said, we'll look at the resurrection next week, but this week I just want to focus uh, on the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is writing in this book of Galatians to a church, maybe a church like ours, I mean, just kind of a, you know, new church uh, that's been infiltrated by false teachers. Uh, That happened uh, very often in the first century, and it actually happens now, today, in the 21st century as well. Uh, There are false teachers even here in the city of Evansville. I don't know if you know that. There are false teachers here in the city of Evansville. So it happens, okay? And this church has been infiltrated by false teachers who are fronting as Christians. And Paul, you'll see in this passage that we're going to read, Paul refers to them in the third person, okay? And you'll, you'll pick that up. Let's read what Paul says, and then I'll explain. Those, okay, those, that, that's third person. That would be the false teachers. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh. When you read the word flesh in the New Testament, what it means is just human stuff. Like, like there's no work of God in it. It's just human, like human performance, human achievement, um, human accomplishment. Nothing of God, just all human, okay? So he says, he says those false teachers who want to impress people by means of just human flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Four times we've heard about circumcision here so far. May I never boast, Paul says. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy, to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. Uh, I think it's. I think for people who are new to the Bible, and maybe even for for people who are used to reading the Bible, I think it's always uh, probably surprising, maybe even seems odd, that there's all this talk about circumcision uh, in the New Testament. What's what? You know, what in the world you might ask? Does circumcision have to do with the gospel? And the answer is nothing. Uh, nothing at all. Circumcision doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. But as obvious as that might seem to you and to me here in the 21st century, it was not obvious at all 
uh, to first century Christians. And let me just explain why a little background on circumcision. Way back in the Old Testament, very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God promised the patriarch of Israel, a guy by the name of Abraham. He said, God, God told him that he would rescue the world, that God would rescue the world from sin through a Messiah that would be a descendant of this, guy's, uh, of this guy, Abraham. Now, you can imagine that when Abraham hears the word descendant, well, I mean, he thinks, well, okay, so whoever this Messiah is, he's going to be the process, the, you know, he's going to come from the natural process of procreation, right? So, uh, I will sleep with my wife, or one of my descendants will sleep with his wife, and uh, one of these women will bear a child who will be the Messiah, uh, who will rescue the world. And that makes perfect sense, right? Right? <laughs> yes, this makes perfect sense. But that wasn't the plan. Uh, that wasn't God's plan at all. The Messiah would be the result of God's supernatural intervention into human affairs, which as we know now, okay, they didn't know this then, but we know it now, this Messiah would come in the form of a virgin birth. God wanted to keep this in the forefront of Israel's collective consciousness. And so he commanded that as part of the Jewish law, Every baby born into Jewish, a Jewish family, every baby boy born into a Jewish family was to have the foreskin of his reproductive organ cut away. So the flesh would actually be cut. And he would do this as a very visual and physical reminder that the Messiah would not be the work of human flesh, but the Messiah would be the work of God. And this was always in their collective conscience. I mean, if you, <laughs> I don't mean to, be, I really don't mean to be crude about this, but I do, I do just want to make this point. I mean, if you know anything about, like, you know, young men and, and, and men, uh, what's happening with their reproductive organ at any point in time is very much in the forefront of their mind at pretty much all the time. So this would be like a very, very, a clear and conscious reminder of what God's plan was, that he was going to rescue the world, but it wasn't going to come through, through human uh, flesh. Okay? It was going to come through a supernatural intervention uh, by God. So this was, the circumcision was a very meaningful rite in that it expressed the Jewish people's hope in a future Jewish Messiah who would come from God, not from man's effort. Okay, now that's the background. That's, that's why circumcision uh, is talked about fairly frequently in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament. Now, you'll see the significance of that as we really focus in this morning. I, want, I really want to take this passage and really focus in primarily on what Paul says in verse 14, because I think this is fascinating. He says, again, we put it up on the screen. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, if you think about what Paul is saying here, it is very, very significant. He's saying that the historical reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, what he actually did on the cross, what he actually did physically on the cross, the atonement that he made there for human sins on the cross— 
He's saying if you come to grasp the significance of the cross, it will completely revolutionize your daily life. Yes, it will, it will revolutionize your eternal life as well, but it will revolutionize your daily life. Because what Paul is saying here is that the day I made the cross the governing principle of my life, it revolutionized my relationship to the world. And what we're going to see is that Paul began to experience a radical freedom that he had never experienced before once he grasped the significance of the cross. And some of you are saying to yourself, you're like, okay, look, um, I've believed in what Jesus did on the cross since I was a little kid. Um, What's the big deal? You know, I get it. can't imagine you're going to tell me anything new this morning about it. But, But here's my question. For you. Have you grasped the significance of the cross? Has it revolutionized your life internally? Now, look, I, I know that there are probably many things that we could look at uh, about your life externally that you would say that we would look at and we'd say, well, that's, you know, Yes, externally, his life, her life is very different from people who don't believe in the cross of Christ. I know that, okay? But I'm asking you, what about internally? Internally. Has it revolutionized your life internally? Do you experience a freedom, a peace about your daily life that is radically different from those who don't believe in the cross? Or are you basically living with the same internal angst and anxiety that people who don't believe in the cross of Christ live with internal? Okay? Paul says, if you get the cross, if you really get it, it'll change you internally in a way that it will revolutionize your daily experience. Okay? And if you want that, if you want your daily experience to be revolutionized, this, test, te- this text tells us there's three characteristics of people who've had their lives revolutionized by the cross. And believe me, you want this. So pay close attention here. Okay, I'm going to walk you through these three characteristics. First, Paul says the life revolutionized by the cross, here's the first thing he says, grasps the offense of the cross. The life that is revolutionized by the cross grasps the offense of the cross. And what do, what, you know, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by the offense of the cross? Well, the New Testament often speaks about the offense of the cross. Earlier in Galatians, you don't have to turn there. We'll put it up on the, on the screen here for you. Earlier in, in Galatians, Paul says this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, brothers, if I'm preaching circumcision, why am I still being... There's circumcision again, right? Okay, so if I'm still... If I'm preaching persecution... Uh, excuse me. Let me try this again, all right? Easier. It's easier for you to listen to than it is for me to say. If I'm preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted for the offense of the cross? And in verse 12 of the passage that we just read here in chapter 6, uh, he says that the only reason these false teachers want these uh, Gentile Galatians... By the way... Most Gentiles back then weren't circumcised at birth. So Paul says that the only reason that these false teachers want these Gentile Galatians to be circumcised is to avoid being persecuted for the offense of the cross. What does that mean? Well, here's what's happening. 
okay? Here's what's happening. In this church, there are two competing messages about the gospel being taught. And the question that's being argued between Paul and these false teachers is simply this. What role does human performance play in a person's salvation? What role does human performance play in a person's salvation? In other words, in other words, this, do human beings contribute to their salvation? Can we obey? Can we be good enough? Can we do enough good to merit uh, our salvation? If the answer is yes, if the, if the answer is human beings have a role in their salvation, then the Galatians need not to just believe in Jesus, but they also need to get circumcised. Because in the Jewish context, obeying and doing good uh, meant obeying the law, uh, which began, of course, with the distinctly Jewish rite of circumcision. So these Gentile uh, believers needed to get circumcised. They needed to believe in Jesus. Yes, got that. But now you also need to get circumcised, okay? These Gentile Christians. The false teachers were saying, yes, of course, you've you got to believe in Jesus. Uh, yeah, it's good to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised to be saved. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. That's what they were saying, the false teachers. That was their perversion of the gospel. So you could summarize by saying that the false teachers were teaching a perversion of the gospel that looked like this. And if you were in my Sunday night I change class, you would be able to, uh, you'd be able to give this like right by heart, because we cover it every Sunday night, okay? Here's what the false teacher's perversion of the gospel was. Here's what they were teaching. Believe in Jesus plus obey by circumcision, and then you're saved, okay? That's what they taught. On the other hand, the apostle Paul was teaching something very different. You see, in these guys, in, in the false teacher's perversion, this believe plus obey equals saved, human performance plays a very significant role in salvation, which, is, of course, is why Paul says back in, in verse 12, at the beginning of this passage that we've read, he said, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Okay. See, they're trying to impress people by means of human flesh. See, if, if, if human performance plays a role in salvation, then you can look around at other people and say, I'm saved because I obey, I obey more than other people. I'm saved because I'm a good person. But Paul, who was a Jew himself, was saying, absolutely not. These people don't need to get circumcised. The whole point of circumcision was to demonstrate faith in a future Jewish Messiah. So now that he's already come... Uh, into the world, circumcision really is a meaningless rite, but also circumcision demonstrated faith that God's rescue of the world was not going to be the work of human flesh because human performance could never be enough. So you could summarize what Paul was saying. I know I've said a lot there. Let me, let me just summarize, okay? I just, I just I kind of said a mouthful there. Let me, let me just summarize like this. Paul's, Paul was teaching this, and again, if you were in my I Change class on Sunday night, you'd get this. You'd be able to say this by heart because we cover it all the time. Here's what Paul was, Paul was teaching. He was teaching, believe in Jesus and you're saved. Not believe plus obey. Just believe in Jesus and you're saved. 
And as a result then of being saved, well, then you can obey in the spirit of all the things that the law was about, which was loving people and, and, and loving God. It was, the spirit of the, of the law wasn't like, you know, uh, get circumcised. It was love God and love people. And once you're saved, you can do that. Prior to being saved, you can't. Okay. Now, the question is, I know what you're thinking, is what, what, you know, how does any of this help us understand the idea of the offense of the cross? Okay, let me, let me get there now for you. If the, cross, if the cross is all that can save you, if it's the only thing that can save you, if human performance plays no role in salvation, I want you to think about the implications of that. That means the cross stands there wherever you see it. If you see it tattooed on someone's body, if you see it hanging around someone's neck, if you see it in a picture, wherever you see a cross, if you see it on, a road, on the roadside, if you see it in a cemetery, wherever you see a cross, it stands there and says, no matter how good you think you are, you are so sinful, you can't obey enough to save yourself. Your rescue, your salvation had to come from God's work. It had nothing to do with you. And it says, it, it says, it also says, no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how ashamed you are of the things you've done, you're way worse than you think you are. You can't clean your life up enough to make God accept you. God's son had to die for your sinfulness. And that offends, you see, almost everyone. On the one hand, it offends the religious person who is like maybe they're a great philanthropist. Maybe they're a do-gooder who loves the environment and hugs trees and who's sophisticated and refined and never does anything politically incorrect and never utters a racist word and hears no evil and sees no evil and in their mind they do no evil. The cross offends them because the gospel says, look, you're still such a sinner that the blood of God's Son had to be shed for you. You can't be saved without bowing a knee to Jesus. And that's offensive. Uh, it judges, you see, the cross judges them. That's offensive. And on the other hand, so, so on the one hand, it offends the religious person. On the other hand, it offends the postmodern, self-expressive individualist who knows that they've done some things really wrong, and they're maybe even ashamed of those things. The gospel says to that person, look, you can try, you can, you can engage in all kinds of self-reformation. You can try to reform yourself. You can stop drinking. You can stop sleeping around. You can stop screwing people out of money, whatever. But self-reformation will not be enough. You're lost, dude. Jesus had to die a bloody death for you. You see, it offends everyone. Do you, do you understand that? It offends the prude. It offends the pagan. It offends the religious. It offends the irreligious. The cross says everyone is a hopeless sinner. The cross judges everybody. And so when you hear about the cross, you're forced to either be offended and repulsed by it, or you think, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. This is the best news I have ever heard. This is my only hope. There's one or the other. See, there's no neutrality about it. The cross, the cross polarizes people. And, and can't you feel that? Can you feel how the cross offends people and polarizes people? Maybe you can even feel it here in the room. Some of you may be offended by it this morning. That's the offense of the cross. 
And you see, the way to freedom, the way to being revolutionized by the cross on a moment-by-moment basis in your life begins with grasping the offense of the cross, really getting it. But not only grasping it, there's something else. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 14. He says, May I never boast, again, same, same verse that we've been reading, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, Paul is saying, I not only grasp the offensiveness of the cross, but I boast in it. And that's the second characteristic of a person whose life has been revolutionized by the cross. He or she boasts in the cross of Christ. And, and you know, so like what does it mean? What does it mean to boast uh, in something? It's so like when you boast about something, probably what you're thinking of, you normally boast about what makes you you know, what you believe makes you worthwhile as, as a person, like what you build your self-appreciation, uh, your self-esteem, your identity uh, on. And for most people, right, that would mean things that make them look good, like your achievements. You know, you boast in your achievements, or you boast in your uh, performance, or, or maybe you boast in your professional status, or maybe you boast in your intelligence, or in your education, or in your ability uh, to flow with hip-hop kind of stuff. That's the kind of thing I boast in, you see. Uh, something like that. Okay, whatever you think makes you look good. Paul's saying that a person who is revolutionized by the cross of Christ is a person who more and more finds his or her worth, his or her self-appreciation, completely programmed by the cross, not by the standards of the world. They've been freed from that stuff. And now their entire sense of worth and their value as a person on a moment-by-moment basis, is increasingly found in what Jesus did on the cross, not what they do, right? You see, what he's saying, you know, this whole idea of boasting in the cross, a Christian, a person whose life has been revolutionized by the cross, they don't, you know, that person doesn't just admire the cross or maybe get inspired by the symbolism of the cross, or even just intellectually believe in the cross, that person boasts, exults in the cross. It becomes like the governing principle of their lives. It becomes their universe. They boast in its wisdom. They begin to see more and more over the years of their life how all of the contradictions of life find their resolution in the cross. On the, cro- on, on the one hand, if you think about the cross, on the one hand, the cross demonstrates the unattainable holiness, unattainable for human people, uh, for human beings, the unattain- unattainable holiness and justice of God. That's, that's one part of the cross. But somehow, in the cross, the holiness and the justice of God flows mingled down in the blood of Christ with the love and the mercy of God. So it all comes together on the cross. The holiness of God and the love of God 
of the justice of God and the mercy of God are all, they all come together. Those contradictions, those apparent contradictions are not contradictions at all when you look at the cross. They're resolved in the cross. It all comes together on the cross. Thorns become a crown. The prince of life is killed. Uh, the holiness and the love of God come together and kiss in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you see, on the way to being revolutionized by the cross of Christ, you, be, you see, you begin, to, you begin to boast, not in the stuff that makes you look good, but in the wisdom and the beauty of the cross as the only way to God. Okay? And as a result, you're freed from the world. Which is why Paul says, again, last, just now, last phrase in this verse 14, okay, last phrase. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And watch this phrase. He says, through which the world has been crucified to me. In other words, it's dead to me. And I've been crucified to the world. And, and that's the last characteristic of a person whose life has been revolutionized by the cross. Paul is saying that a person whose life has been revolutionized by the cross experiences the freedom of the cross. And what he means by this whole idea of being crucified to the world, this freedom of the cross, you know, I've been crucified to the world, the world's been crucified to me. What he means by that is that there's a freedom from the ideas and the governing principles of the world's system, okay? The ideas, the governing principles of the world's system. For instance, think about this, okay? Uh, one of the governing ideas, one of the principles of the world system, maybe, maybe the most significant principle of the world system is the idea of the survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest. And oh my goodness, if you live under that system, under that idea, if that's the governing principle of your life, there is no freedom under that. You have to perform. You've got to achieve. You've got to get on top of other people. You've got to get ahead of other people. You've got to compare yourself to other people. You've got to compete with other people. You've got to beat them. You've got to win. You've got to win. You've got to win at all costs. There's pressure under that system. But when you boast in the cross, you're boasting in something completely opposite of the survival of the fittest idea system. At the cross, the principle of the survival of the fittest dies a thousand deaths when you realize that the ultimate fittest being in the universe willingly sacrificed his life for me, the least fit being in the universe. And so suddenly, your performance and your achievements mean nothing at the cross. Your goodness, your looks, your bank account, your achievements, your career, your status, your social status, whatever. It all means nothing at the cross because God doesn't accept you on the basis of anything that you have done. He accepts you only on the basis of what Christ has done. And oh, there is freedom in that. And I want you to hear this. 
Listen to this. Uh, Make note of this. You will never be free for the world until you experience freedom from the world. You will never be free for the world until you experience freedom from the world. I want you to notice what Paul says in the very last verse of this little passage, verse 16. Paul says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. In other words, this rule that believe equals you're saved, that no human effort can ever achieve your salvation, that it's not about what you do, it's about what Christ does. Peace and mercy to all who understand that, to even to the Israel of God. What he means is this. Here's what he, here's what he means. Until I began not to worry about the world, till I began not to worry about living under that whole survival of the fittest system, I never had peace. I couldn't. I had anxiety. I had fear. And when you're living out of anxiety and fear, you, listen, listen, if you're living with anxiety and fear, you can't live for anyone else but yourself. You can't. Anxiety and fear make you self-obsessed. They just do. You can't show mercy to anyone under the survival of the fittest system because they don't deserve mercy. Look, survival of the fittest is all about earn your way or you die. If you're poor, that's your fault. If you're mentally challenged, better for me. You can't make sacrifices for people because you're so anxious someone else might get ahead of you. You gotta fight for your survival. You can't forgive anybody under the survival of the fittest system because you got to get revenge. You got to get retribution. You got to get retaliation under that system. Boasting in the cross allows you to be free of all of that self-obsession. I can forgive the people who hurt me without having to exact retaliation and revenge because at the cross, Christ completely paid for the things they've done to hurt me. He took the punishment. I can forgive them because Christ paid for it. And once you're free from uh, the world, you can serve the world. For instance, just think about this for a moment. Imagine you have a friend who needs some kind of intervention. I don't know. They've got some kind of addiction. Maybe, maybe there's some behavior that they're in that is, is, is destructive that you know that they need an intervention. If you're under, operating under the world system and they're a person whose approval you need, Like you're not boasting in the cross. You boast in your social status. You boast in who likes you and who doesn't like you and all of that. You'll never, you will never intervene. You'll never say the hard thing to that person if you don't boast in the cross. You never do it. But if you boast in the cross, you'll be able to say, Look, regardless of how this person responds, I have my Savior's acceptance. Then you can do what's best for them, not just what's expedient for you. You see, if you boast in the cross. And once you're out from under the world system, you'll be able to make sacrifices for people. Because it's not about you getting ahead of them. 
And once you're out from under the world system, you'll be able to speak out and say things that need to be said that may be hard. You'll be able to take stands for things that you need to take a stand for because your reputation will no longer be an idol in your life and material things will never be the sum total of your identity again. You see, everything is revolutionized in your life when you begin to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Understand something. The cross is more than just a symbol of suffering. It's a, it is more than a symbol of suffering. The cross is a literal event in human history in which God entered the world and through his son atoned for the sins of humanity. And when you believe in Christ and what he did on the cross, you can be saved. Only by belief in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Not by being circumcised, not by being baptized, not by taking communion, not by not drinking, not by not dancing, not by not gambling, not by whatever the lists are, you know, whatever the lists are. But you're saved only by believing in Jesus. That's it. And not only does that change your eternal destiny, but it can revolutionize every moment of your daily life here on this planet. Here's my question for you. Have you grasped the significance of the literal event called the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for the sins of humanity? Have you grasped it? Have you grasped the offense of the cross? Do you boast Uh, in the cross? Are you experiencing the internal freedom uh, of the cross? Because once you get it, once you really understand the cross, it will revolutionize your life. In just a moment, we're going to sing this song. The band will come up, and they'll play, then they'll sing this song. Uh, And part of the lyrics are, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we see that on the cross. We see the holiness of God on the cross. But we also see there on the cross the profound love of God in the person of Jesus who took God's justice so that we could experience God's mercy. In the person of Jesus, the holiness and the love of God kiss. There's the beauty. And there's the profound wisdom of God right there at the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, I guess I just begin with a confession of my own sin that I cannot say with any honesty that I boast in the cross of Christ in the manner that Paul is describing here. And I pray that you would change that about me. Uh, Pray that you would help me to grasp the significance of the cross. I pray that for every person in this room, that we would grasp the significance of the cross and that we would boast in it. And Lord Jesus, I pray that as a result of that, our lives internally would be changed radically in a way that ultimately demonstrates itself externally. 
Pray for those that are here this morning that have never even, maybe they've never heard this idea that only by belief in what Jesus did on the cross, you can be saved. Pray that maybe today would be a day that you would make that very, very real to them and that they would come to a place where they would accept, they would believe, they would believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. For those here here today who have believed but have never grasped the significance of the cross, would you drive that home today in the way that only your Holy Spirit can? We recognize and we affirm today that salvation, the rescue of humanity comes by a work of God, not by a work of human flesh. And we, we behold you, Lord Jesus. We glorify your name, Lord Jesus. We worship your name, Lord Jesus, for what you've done on our behalf. It's in your name that we pray.